Welcome to another episode of the Intoxicated Podcast. My name is Matt Salis, and on this episode, we are, go- are going to talk about the topics for week four of the Shout Sobriety Program. Now, for those of you that are regular Intoxicated Podcast listeners, or you've just stumbled upon this podcast in one way or another, let me explain briefly the Shout Sobriety Program. This is something that we've put together that encompasses all of the things that I learned when it was time for me to get sober from alcoholism. It's what worked for me that wasn't available in a formatted program at the time. So once I got into long-term sobriety, I recorded it all, put it together, and we offer it now in a six-week online course. The Shout Sobriety program is completely free of charge. Um, We don't believe that people should have to pay to get sober, so that's why we format it this way. We uh, do collect donations to keep the program alive and thriving. So if sobriety is important to you and you like what you see or hear about the program and you want to contribute, we'd love to have you do so. Either way, to learn more, to enroll in the program yourself, we'd, we'd love to have more participants, or to donate, you can check us out at shoutsobriety.com and there'll be more information there. So, week four for our Shout Sobriety participants. This week's topics, there's two topics again this week, and they are victims and emotions. Again, I know I say this every time I discuss a topic, but these are hugely important, and both of them, in my opinion, are just wildly misunderstood uh, by the addiction community and by people who've never been affected by addiction. Let's start out by talking about victims. Who are the victims of alcoholism? Certainly, anyone who has had alcoholism in their family or with a close friend group, you can identify that the, for instance, the spouse of someone who's an alcoholic is a victim. Certainly, the children of someone battling alcoholism, the children are victims. Other family members, other friends, anyone who is kind of in the path of the hurricane, if you will, anyone who suffers negative consequences when the person who is trying to control their drinking, when they drink in an out-of-control manner, things that they'll say, the actions they'll take, the combativeness, the kind of pent-up anger that comes out, all of that makes the people that are around the alcoholic a victim. But I'm here to tell you that it is my belief that the alcoholic themselves, the person that's battling Uh, drinking and the amount that they drink, that person is a victim too. And I think it's really, really important that we, in every way possible, view it that way and treat the person that's having difficulty with their drinking, treat that person as a victim as well. There's no point to blame and there's no point to shaming someone who's suffering from the disease of alcoholism. All that does is create barriers, it makes communication fall apart, it makes the alcoholic hide away, feel bad about themselves, and guess what alcoholics do when we feel bad about ourselves? We drink to medicate. So the blame and shame game, it it really doesn't have any place. And, 
you know, I feel that way for the most part about all addictions for sure, but I especially feel that way about alcoholism because one of the main reasons that I feel that the alcoholic him or herself is a victim is because of the way our society is set up, the way our culture is set up. There is alcohol everywhere. Um, from bars and restaurants to grocery stores to all the advertising. If you watch television or read magazines or listen to the radio, there is alcohol just hitting us from every direction. And it's not just you know merchandise and people who are paying for things like advertising and signage. It's our friends too and our family. For, the mo- for most of us, we grew up where members of our family drank to celebrate, drank to commiserate, drank to deal with stress, drank just because it was 5 o'clock no matter how they were feeling. And our neighbors are probably the same way. Certainly in my neighborhood it is. Any event, any social occasion from where you would expect drinking to be, uh, a party in the evening with adults, even down to a 4-year-old's birthday party at 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, there's a good chance there's going to be mimosas and and a cooler of beer. So alcohol is everywhere. And in my case, it started early. Certainly, I saw my father and my grandfather drink when I was a child. Um, I watched all the neighbors and my parents' friends were all drinkers. And by the time it got to high school and it was time for experimentation for me, it wasn't a matter of whether or not I would drink. It was just a matter of how much I would drink and how I could get away with it when I was young. So the inevitability of drinking is one of the reasons that I feel like we're, as alcoholics, we too are victims of the disease. It was kind of inevitable for me anyway, from basically from birth, that I was going to drink. And when I drank, I was going to love it so much. And the euphoric feeling would hit. And then I would be off to the races and addicted. So the inevitability is one of the reasons I consider the alcoholic to be a victim. And then, you know, the other reason is it, it is a disease. Most people that I encounter have come around to the point where they will admit that alcoholism is a disease. I know that when my parents were learning about my alcoholism, it took a little bit of time, but they educated themselves. And before too long, maybe six months into my sobriety, I remember having a conversation with my father and he said, yeah, mad alcoholism is a disease. I, I grant you that. It is a disease. So if I'm the alcoholic and alcoholism is a disease, and most people will agree to that, then I'm a victim. That's just how it works. When you contract a disease or an illness, you are the victim of that disease or illness. So the idea that we fight that, and we want to blame the alcoholic and shame the alcoholic, and say, oh yeah, I know it's a disease, but you brought this on yourself. Why don't you stop drinking, and then everything would be better. That's just not how it works. This is a a brain disease, as we've talked about in previous weeks of the Shout Sobriety Program, as we've all read Annie Grace writing about. It it is a brain disease. Our subconscious mind is overtaken. Our neurotransmitter function is out of whack. And when your brain doesn't work right, really bad things happen. And one of them, in the case of alcoholism, is we are a victim of a disease. Now, I feel like I've I've spent five or so minutes now kind of beating that home and convincing you, hopefully, that you are the victim of a disease. Now, I expect most people that are listening to this, you are an alcoholic yourself. So I spent five minutes convincing you. Imagine how long it might take 
to convince our, our loved ones, our family, our spouse, our children, our parents. It's hard, It's a hard concept, especially when they have done a few different things. They've been through a lot of pain themselves. In many cases, the people around us don't have the same reaction to alcohol that we do. They don't have an addiction. And so they don't understand why we just can't stop. Just stop. And if you don't just stop, just quit drinking, quit lifting the bottle to your lips, then how can I consider you a victim? You're bringing it on yourself. Now, in that regard, there's an interesting concept. I heard I heard someone just the other day, a medical expert, talking about the fact that most cancers are brought on by some kind of thing that we've done. You know, the, the most obvious example is lung cancer. Not always, but usually lung cancer is brought on by smoking cigarettes. But there's a lot of cancers that result from obesity. There are a lot of cancers that result from alcohol consumption. There, cancer is often the result of a lifestyle choice. Not always. I certainly don't want to anger the cancer victims. I definitely think if you have cancer, you are a victim. We should throw everything we have at curing you and curing the disease overall. I think that's important. It's necessary. It's in it's in the, the nation and the world's best interest. I'm all for curing cancer. But we never hesitate to call someone who contracts cancer a victim of cancer. And if they get their cancer into remission, we say that they beat cancer and we celebrate that person and we're excited for that person. And rightly so. Absolutely rightly so. But the same holds true for us alcoholics. We contract a disease because of lifestyle choices, because of what society pushed upon us, because of the decisions that we made, because of something that we did, something we consumed. And in doing so, we contracted a really, really deadly disease, just like in many cases of cancer. So maybe that is a tool that we can use when we're explaining how we feel about the disease of alcoholism to our loved ones. Maybe we can make that cancer comparison, but it's it's really, really important that people outside of the medical community and people outside of the recovery warrior community understand that not only is alcoholism a disease, but the alcoholic, him or herself, is the victim number one, not that there aren't other victims, but is victim number one and needs to be treated as such. The things that we need to, to treat someone who's suffering from a disease are things like science. So one of the things we talk about in the Shout Sobriety Program is brain chemistry. Another thing that we talk about in the Shout Sobriety Program is nutrition, the, what we've learned about nutrition and the way that that can help regenerate neurotransmitters. So science is something we use. Medicine we, that we use to cure someone that's a victim of a disease But another thing we use is compassion. And there have been scientific studies. There's a a book that I, I haven't read the book yet, but I read a little bit about it called Compassionomics. Look it up if you're interested. It, It talks about how when doctors show compassion for their patients, not only does the healing rate of the patient increase, the amount that's spent on treating that person declines and the doctor themselves has more job satisfaction and is less likely 
to encounter burnout. So the book Compassionomics, they've actually put a number to that. They've they've quantified in dollars how much money is taken out of the uh, the amount of money that we spend treating chronic illness based on using compassion. Well, that's what's missing. That's one of the things that's missing from treating addiction and specifically alcoholism. The and and it it's logical. It makes sense. The family of someone that is suffering from alcoholism, they've been on the bad end, the receiving end of arguments that are illogical that are brought on by alcohol. They've been called names. They might have had their finances disrupted by this disease. They have, have certainly had arguments or, or seen their loved one decline. So it's really, really easy if you are the loved one of someone who's battling alcoholism to get mad, to get angry, to have resentment, to feel bad about what's being been said to you, about what's been done to you. I get it. That's one of the things that sets alcoholism apart from other diseases. But at the end of the day, finding a way to show compassion for the alcoholic, compassion is is being scientifically proven to help people heal. And the same holds true for alcoholics. <clears throat> When, when we're going through, you know, the pits of despair, the worst, we're, we're at our bottom, we're at our rock bottom, things are as bleak and dark as they can be, we tend to hide away in shame and, and cover ourselves with lies. And if we are being exposed to compassion, love from our loved ones, saying, listen, I understand, I know what you're going through, let's try to find a way to treat this with science, with love to help get you out of the pit of despair, then the alcoholic is just more likely to open up, more likely to address their issue, more likely to find a treatment solution that can work for them, and more likely to get healthy. Now, don't misunderstand. If you're the loved one of an alcoholic, I am not saying that you need to become an enabler. You know, the the term enabling just means that you do things that you think are in the best interest of the alcoholic, but really you're just making it easy for the alcoholic to continue on the disease path. So, for instance, paying all their bills, giving them a place to live when they um, you know, have destroyed chance after chance to, to stay in relationship with you. Certainly going to the liquor store and buying liquor for them because they say they need it. These are, these are things that an enabler does, and we don't want to enable alcoholics so I don't want to. I don't want there to be confusion there, but that doesn't mean we can't love them. That doesn't mean we can't explain to them that we understand. That doesn't mean we can't educate ourselves on the disease and then convey what we've learned to the alcoholics who are suffering in our lives. Compassion is big, and it can really help alcoholics find a way out of the the pit that we're in. The other topic today is emotional immaturity. Now, th- this is a Another one that's a really important topic, but a little bit tough to grasp. I know I probably had to read about it three or four or five or six times in various books that I read about recovery from alcoholism before it really started to sink in for me. But here's the basic gist. For many, many, many of us that suffer from alcohol use disorder, we started drinking in our teen years, mid to late teens, experimentation in high school, uh, then for most of us, for many of us, binge drinking, heavy drinking during our young 20s in college. 
And what happens is we basically freeze our emotional maturity at the stage where we start drinking to suppress emotions. That sentence is kind of a mouthful. But what I mean is when when we learn that, hey, if I'm sad and I drink a few beers, the sadness goes away, then that's something that we start to do on a frequent basis. We start sadness, um, stress, worry, anything like that. We start to drink those emotions away. And when we start to do that, again, in our late teens or early 20s, we stunt our emotional growth at that point because we no longer know how to manage stress or worry or sadness in a natural way. What we know how to do is to drown it out when it comes. And so when we get sober, in my case, I was, what was I, 44, 43 or 44 when I stopped drinking. I had the emotional maturity of a 15-year-old at age 43 or 44 because that was the last time in my life that I really let emotions wash over me and I dealt with emotions just in a natural human way because that was the last time I had to. Ever since I started drinking... I figured out quickly, oh, if I don't feel very good, guess what? I can drink and that bad feeling will go away. So it, you know, to me it seemed, it seemed silly to think of myself as having the emotional maturity of a teenager, but it's, it's really true. And it's, it's one of the many things, you know, I've talked over and over and written over and over in the Shout Sobriety program about the number of things that take a long time to fix themselves. Brain chemistry stuff, the subconscious mind, neurotransmitters, um, having the sober muscles to get through social events without drinking, all of this stuff. And one year, again, is kind of the magic number. It's not precise. It's not the same for everyone. But for me, it took about a year, maybe even longer in this case, for me to get used to emotions hitting me and me just holding on tight and dealing with it. A lot of people talk about sitting with emotions, letting emotions come, and you don't do anything to try to block them or to try to change them. You don't try to work yourself into happiness. You just deal with it. I'm sad right now, and I'm going to sit with it and let myself be sad. And because we can't drink them away, really the most mature, most responsible, most intelligent thing to do when we get hit with, a, with some bad emotions is to do just that. Just to sit with the emotions, think about what it means, and let it come because we know, we eventually learn that it, it will go, it will pass. If you're sad, think about why you're sad. Don't fight it. Just let it be the emotion that you're feeling for the time being and another emotion will come and maybe, who knows, maybe that next emotion will be happiness and you'll be feeling good again. But Sadness is a part of it, and it's a natural part of it, and we need to learn how to deal with it. I'll tell you a quick story about my emotional immaturity transitioning into somewhat of a way of handling things in a mature way. And this happened just recently. I'm about two and a half years sober as I'm recording this, and it was a week or so ago when the first thing that happened was my dishwasher broke on Sunday morning as the family was getting ready to go to church. And the way I found out that we had a dishwasher problem was I was in our basement below the kitchen and water started dripping on my head. And I looked up and there was a little crack in the ceiling and there was water dripping through. So 
I went upstairs, I grabbed a flashlight, and I started to seek out. Now, the kitchen was right above where the drip was, so certainly in a kitchen there's lots of opportunities for water to be dripping. My, you know, kind of panic mode nightmare was that there was a cracked pipe in the wall because that would be expensive, that would require a plumber, and that would not be something that would be fixed quickly. Probably have to have the water for the whole house shut down for some period of time. So I was really fortunate when I traced the trickle to a valve in the dishwasher and I was able to turn the valve that leads to the supply line for the water to the dishwasher. I was able to turn that off, finish getting dressed and join my family uh, heading off to church. After church, I came home and did a little more research, figured out what the part was I needed. I ordered it from Amazon and about a week later, I had found time to install the part, and the dishwasher was back up and running, good to go. I think $18.60 was the total cost of the part. Now, back in my drinking days, I would, because, see, one of the things, and we've talked about this, one of the things that being a drinker does is it creates anxiety even during our sober times. When we talk about depression and anxiety associated with alcoholism, we're not talking about necessarily while we are drinking alcohol. We're talking about the stress and anxiety that overwhelms us when we're sober. So that was certainly the case for me. If I had found a leak coming out of my basement ceiling, water dripping on my head, back when I was a drinker, I would have wigged out. I surely would have shut off the water to the whole house immediately to stop the drip. But in doing so, I would have made it impossible for me to trace the source of the drip. I wouldn't have been able to figure out where the leak was coming from. Um, I would have stomped around and stormed around and been all upset because Sunday is my one day to relax and and now I've got to deal with this and I would have made my, my children miserable. My wife would have gotten the brunt of my fuming. She would have been upset about it and rightly so. It, it just would have been a disaster. And because I wasn't drinking when this happened and I just kind of processed it slowly, did a couple of little um, things to try to find the source of the problem and then moved on with my day, it it was almost like a non-event. Again, the financial impact was $18.60. And I just know that had this happened when I was drinking, it would have been a disaster. Now that, for me, that is a sign of emotional maturity. That's something that in early sobriety, I still would have reacted poorly. I would have kind of flipped out, been real upset that my Sunday was ruined, and then stomped and snorted around trying to figure out how to solve the problem. So the the emotional maturity, it's really starting, again, two and a half years in, it's really starting to, to blossom into something really great. Something stressful like that caused me no stress. It was just something I had to deal with like anything else. Like it had the significance of getting a paper cut to me. I, I, ah, I wish it wasn't happening, but I'll figure it out and I'll move on. Later in the same week, at the end of that same week, actually, Saturday night, my wife and I were getting ready to watch a movie before bed, which I know that's that's about as exciting as it gets around here anymore. But that I was looking forward to it. It had been a long week. I wanted to get some rest. And uh, before we started the movie, I realized that our refrigerator was warm, quite warm actually. And so I. Back in my drinking days on a Saturday night, I'd have been drunk. And so my reaction would have been awful. I would have, again, stormed and snotted and snorted around and made my kids 
upset, made my wife angry. I, I, I don't know exactly what my moves would have been, but they wouldn't have been helpful, that's for sure. And it certainly would have involved heavily consuming alcohol for the rest of the night because I just didn't have the emotional maturity to deal with a minor thing like your refrigerator's going on the blink. In this case, what happened a week or so ago on Saturday night, I pulled the refrigerator out from the wall. Now, listen, I'm decent at home maintenance. I stick a vacuum cleaner under the front of the refrigerator sometimes and try to clean that thing out. I know you got to keep compressor coils clean. But I would say that my efforts were kind of half-assed at best because I pulled the back off of the refrigerator and there was so much dust in there that it actually clogged up the fan that moves the air around underneath the refrigerator. I think it's called the compressor fan. It was seized up. So I unplugged the refrigerator. I cleaned down there for an hour and a half, two hours. It was not a pleasant task. I was filthy when it was over. I had to wear a respirator to keep from breathing in all this junk. But when it was over, I plugged the refrigerator back in. The fan's whirling like it's supposed to. Everything's clean underneath. I pushed the refrigerator back against the wall, and I went to bed pretty confident that it was going to be cold in the morning, and sure enough, it was. So I'm certain that in at least one of those two appliance situations back in my drinking days, I would have spent 500 bucks on a service call, you know, it, so a, a service person would have come out and either cleaned out the bot, cleaned out the bottom of my refrigerator, no parts, just cleaning, or they would have replaced an eight dollar and eighteen dollar and sixty cent part in my uh, dishwasher. Either way, that's going to be a five hundred dollar service call. I'm certain. So I financially made out much better, but emotionally I made out so much better. Sure, I wanted to watch that movie Saturday night. I wanted a little relaxation time. My daughter, my oldest daughter, had actually had a birthday party that night. So I had been cooking food and, you know, taking care of that, making sure that that went well. So it wasn't a very relaxing Saturday afternoon for me. And then when it was time to relax, I had to climb under the refrigerator and do some work instead. But I didn't freak out. I didn't hit the bottle. I just dealt with it like an adult. And I've got to tell you, that's a really, really good feeling. But Again, it's one that took some time. This wasn't a quick, I've been sober for six weeks, so now I can handle everything kind of a thing. No, this was easily a year worth of developing into an emotionally mature person to handle things the way they should be handled. And one thing that I'd like to kind of leave, two things I'd like to leave us with when we talk about the emotional maturity piece is, I really believe this is how the human brain was designed to handle things. I really believe that we as a society, we get too worked up about too many things, too much anxiety, too much anger, just in general. And if you want to know my opinion, I think it's because of the presence of alcohol. It permeates our society so thoroughly. So what I'm saying is I don't think it requires you to become an alcoholic for your emotional growth to be stunted by alcohol consumption. I think there's a lot of social drinkers out there, normal drinkers who are proud of the fact that they only drink three or maybe four days a week and they keep it under control, but they lose their cool a lot. They complain about all the stress that's in their life. They have anxiety problems, sleep deprivation problems as a result, and they can't quite figure out why. Well, I'm here to tell you I believe that the emotional maturity that we display because of consumption of alcohol 
in large quantity or consumption of alcohol even in small quantity is a big contributing factor to the overall emotional immaturity that exists in in our world and that saddens me and I hope that we wake up to that someday and realize like I've said before alcohol consumption in any quantity really just isn't good for us I'm not here trying to make the entire world sober that's not my mission but I think the awareness around alcohol is really important so that when you do decide I'm going to be a social drinker I'm going to drink three or four nights a week I hope you understand the consequences because even if the consequences aren't DUI they aren't loss of your wife they aren't financial collapse there are consequences even for the quote normal the uh, drinker who's got thinks they have everything under control they are dealing with consequences and emotional maturity is one of them the other little note i'd like to add is just one thing about the way i my emotional maturity has developed around the emotion of sadness you know early on when i was learning to just sit with my sadness deal with my sadness let my sadness wash over me whatever way you want to describe that it was hard i didn't like it i couldn't wait to be happy again I just wanted it to pass. But I've really learned to embrace sadness now. Don't get me wrong. I don't want it all the time. And I still, even though I embrace it, I do want to avoid it as much as possible. I want to be a happy dude just like everybody else wants to be happy. But when it happens, when something makes me sad and I know that I'm kind of going into this groove emotionally where I'm going to be sad for a little while, whether that be for an afternoon or for a day or two, depending on what's driving me there, I've really learned to appreciate the fact that I now have this range of emotions that I'm emotionally mature enough to handle. And so while, again, I don't wish for sadness, it doesn't bother me when it's there. It's just part of it. And I'll express my emotions. I've never been afraid to cry in front of people. I mean, if that's if that's the emotion that's coming out, then that's the emotion that's coming out. But even when I'm alone with sadness, it's it's not something that overwhelms me and I and I pray that it goes away. It's just time for sadness. We have to this is part of, like I said, I I believe my body, my brain is coming closer to operating the way the human body was designed to operate now in my mid forties than it ever has been in my life. And that's why experiencing sadness and dealing with it actually it it's enlightening it it brings me <laughs> sounds silly to say that sadness brings me joy but in a way that it does it it brings me joy that i know that i'm going to handle it the way my brain was designed to handle it and i'm going to come out of it on the other side a stronger person and that's a really great feeling and it's a feeling i i wish for all of you for all the people that are listening to this podcast as a part of the week 4 shout sobriety program You are in early sobriety, and a lot of the things that I'm talking about are a long way down the road for you. And I hope that you have the patience and the resiliency to get there because it's really great. It's not unicorns and rainbows great. It's not sunshine flying out of my ass all day great. But it's great in a different way. It's great in, I've used the word maturity about a hundred times on this podcast. It's great in a mature way. It's great in a this is the way life is supposed to be kind of a way. And that's what I want for you. That's what I want for everyone, frankly. So I thank you for listening to this 
episode of the Intoxicated Podcast, week four of the Shout Sobriety Program. Our topics today, again, were victims. You are a victim, along with the other victims of your disease, and emotions, finding the emotional maturity that we deserve. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to working with you down the road here. Thank you.